0: Well good morning church. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're going to be talking about compromise. I heard a story about how before 1974 there was this large portion of land in the northern part of Australia that belonged to these superstitious aborigines. That land was covered with green ants. The aborigines believed that those little green ants were actually their sacred descendants of their pagan gods. So this mining company comes along. They discover these huge deposits of uranium beneath that land. So they approach the Aborigines wanting to purchase the land and the mining rights. But the Aborigines wouldn't hear anything of it. They wouldn't budge. They thought, well, if you destroy the land and our uh, sacred ants, our gods are going to pronounce a curse on us. And they're going to pronounce famine and drought upon our land. Well, in 1974, they sold that land to the mining company. And do you know what changed their mind? $8.3 million changed their mind. They probably thought, well, they may be God's, but for $8.3 million, they can find another place to live. When I think about that story, I would say they compromised their convictions. Amen? I know a lot of Christians who have sold out for a whole lot less, though, than $8 million. We're in our fourth week of our sermon series called Letters to the Church where we're looking at the letters that John, uh, the disciple, wrote to the seven churches while he was on the island of Patmos. If you remember, he wasn't there on a holiday or a vacation. He was banished there for preaching the gospel. They couldn't shut John down. He wasn't going to be quiet. They even tried to kill him. I mentioned they tried to boil him in oil. That didn't work. So they said, we can't shut him up. We can't kill him. So what we'll do is we'll just banish him to this island far away from everyone. But while he was there, he had a vision. It was called a revelation. And it's actually the last book in our Bible. And in a nutshell, the whole book of Revelation is about Jesus. But in the first few chapters, Jesus is dictating these letters to John to be sent out to these seven churches of that day. And Jesus has something he wants to say to every one of these churches, so he sort of gives them a review. We started out looking at the church of Ephesus you remember it was the church who lost that loving feeling i'm not going to sing it but they lost their loving feeling they lost that first love for god last week we looked at the church in smyrna which was a church that was being crushed with persecution today we're going to be looking at the church of pergamos also called pergamum also called the compromising church But my hope in looking at all these seven churches, looking at the letters that were sent to them, that we can identify some areas in our own lives and maybe in our church where we need to redirect some areas in our lives to make sure we're doing things God's way. That's always a good thing. Amen? As we get started, I want to show you a map here. And as you can see from the map, if you'll find Pergamum up here, uh, they started out on Patmos. This would have been uh, the route that a first-century postman would have taken, probably, taken a ship from Pag. Uh, patmos up to pergamos um, which is just about 50 miles north of smyrna that we talked about last week and then he probably would have gone ephesus smyrna pergamos and then on around clockwise to reach all the churches the word pergamos literally means thoroughly married think about that thoroughly married kind of ironic when it comes to this church because i would say this church has lost its fidelity its loyalty to christ actually became more married to the world than to Christ. Just to give you a little history about this city of Pergamum. Start off, it was a very beautiful city. I mean, it was inland from the coast about 15 miles, and it was on such a high elevation that on a clear day, you could see the Mediterranean Sea, which had to be beautiful. It was also a city of culture and learning. They had a major university in the middle of the city. They had a uh, prominent teaching hospital in the city where medicine was practiced and taught, where people would come from miles around to be healed. It was probably their Mayo Clinic of the day. Pergamos was also home for a famous library that housed over 200,000 books. Wow. Back in that day, they had over 200,000 books. They were only second as a library to the great library of Alexandria. I said all that to say Pergamos was a very advanced city, very prosperous and advanced city. Another thing to know about Pergamum, they were also the center of pagan idol worship, the center of it. It was a center for four idolatrous cults, not one, but four. The cult of Zeus, Dionysius, Asclepius, and Athenae. And they built four great temples for each one of these false gods. But they didn't stop there. Not only did they worship these false gods and idols, Pergamum was the center of what they called emperor worship in that part of the world, the center of it all. In fact, in all the empire, it was the first city to actually build and construct a temple dedicated to a living emperor, Caesar Augustus at the time. But just so you understand what I'm trying to say, in other cities like Smyrna, we talked about them last week, you could burn your pinch of incense at the altar and profess Caesar to be Lord, but then you could go out and pretty much live however you wanted to live the rest of the year. Not in this city of Pergamum, worshiping uh, was a little bit more uh, 365 day a year deal when it came to these false gods. So the main issue facing these believers in this city, uh, it was a constant pressure to deny Christ and to start worshiping these false gods and worship Caesar Augustus. Let me start reading with uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. It says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's a reference to the Word of God, that sharp, double-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 describes it this way, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thought and attitudes of the heart. Just like a surgeon's knife cuts, God's sword cuts, God's Word cuts. God's word reveals who we are and who we're not. It actually penetrates all the way to the core of our moral and spiritual lives. So this letter in uh, to Pergamum is definitely going to divide some people because Jesus is going to do what he's done with the other churches. He's going to start out saying what you're doing right, then he's going to tell them what they're doing wrong as a church. But he starts out in verse 13. Look what he says. I know where you live. That's God saying that. It makes you a little nervous when you realize that God's saying, Hey, I've got your number. I've got your 411. You think you can keep your secrets in the dark? You think you can dress them up and even come to church and no one's going to know? Jesus says You'd be wrong because I know everything. I know everything about every situation in your life. Oh, yes, we can fool people. We think we can, but we can never fool God. He's all-knowing. Our God's all-seeing and He's all-present. And right here he's saying, I know where you live. Look what he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When it comes down to it, every single thing, every single thing about you and me is wide open to God. God sees what we do. God even sees every thought that we think. There's no secrets that we can keep from God. But on the flip side of things, think about this. Even though he knows every detail about you and me, the good, bad, and lots of ugly, he still chose to love us anyway. Think about that. That's a miracle in itself. That should give you some comfort, some encouragement, that he loves us in spite of ourselves. But look how he goes on. He says, I know where you live, And then he describes the city of Pergamum this way. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Did you catch that? I know where you live where Satan has his throne. What a description. I don't know about you, but who wants to live in that that city? Not me. I thought you go, or Decatur was a rough area. There's apparently rougher areas, and this was one of them. But seriously, he says where Satan has his throne. This is how God describes this city of Pergamum. And I believe it is a lot due to the worship of false gods, the worship of Caesar, the emperor. But I believe when Jesus says, I know where you live, I believe it's important for us to recognize what Jesus is saying, that he knows the culture that you and I live in. Uh, Just like he understood the culture of Pergamum. He understands the world that we live in every day. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets it, and I believe he understands just how hard it is to be a Christian, when everything in your uh, culture is opposed to everything Jesus stands for. Jesus understands that, but that's how this city was. Look what he continues saying. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, and then he reiterates it again, in your city where Satan lives. So what he's saying, Pergamon was a very ungodly city. They killed Christians uh, because of their faith. They uh, persecuted Christians all day long because of their faith. There's not a whole lot known about this antipas uh, Jesus describes other than God calls him his faithful witness. But I looked up what I could about this guy, and apparently he was part of that church in Pergamum who was eventually martyred because he wouldn't denounce his faith in Christ. That's the way it was back back then. If you didn't denounce your faith in God... Believers were tortured. They were persecuted. They were thrown into fires, burned at the stake. They were torn into pieces by lions. They were beheaded. Some were crucified. They knew the, per- the persecution that they would probably face. But they didn't denounce Christ, they didn't denounce their faith in the one true God. I've just got to say that's some real faith. Amen? Some real faith. I believe in our world today, we do a lot of complaining and say that we're persecuted. I believe in the world and and the country we live in, we don't know a thing about persecution when it comes down to real persecution. We actually think persecution is our boss asking us to work a little overtime. We think persecution sometimes is I don't get to eat my favorite food for dinner. Sometimes we think persecution is, oh, somebody's talking behind my back. I believe we've yet to see real persecution. I'm not saying it's not coming, but I believe we've yet to see it especially in our spiritual lives, in our faith, as many are dealing with across this world uh, even today. So Pergamum, though, definitely was a city that was enduring, or was a church that was enduring horrific persecution. And I would imagine it felt like to them, Satan was large and in charge. I'll be honest. When I look at the condition of our world today, when I look at what's happening in our own country, it feels a whole lot like where Satan has his throne. Amen? Seems a whole lot like Satan is large and in charge. I mean, there's this huge effort to take God out of everything. I don't care which side of the political aisle you're on. Something's wrong with that, to want to take God out of everything. And when you watch the news headlines today, if you're not careful, it can get you down and depressed because it seems like Satan is having his way more today than ever before. Here's a few headlines that I grabbed from just this past week. Wildfires are ravaging California. Here's one about the violence in our country. The headline said, it's nothing but pain. We've got a lot of pain in our world today. Here's another one. A missing U.S. elderly couple found dead at the bottom of a well in Mexico. How about this one? COVID vaccine setback could cause a nasty market setback. And this one, 166% increase in shootings fuels rise in violent crime across New York City. And I won't even get into the hateful political headlines. I'd be here all week. But if news clips like this make you feel like Satan is very much alive and well on planet Earth, it's because he is. He absolutely is. The devil's not in hell, not yet. He will be someday. He's not locked up in that bottomless pit. He will be someday. But in that short amount of time, in the short amount of time that he has left, his primary goal, is to drag men and women away from their faith in Christ. Oh yes, Satan is a defeated foe. That happened when Jesus walked out of that tomb on Easter Sunday morning. But just like a mortally wounded bear or lion is something to steer clear of, Satan is a very powerful, vicious enemy, and he's dangerous. Let me go back to the text, because many people are probably thinking, Pergamum? What a terrible place to plant a church. What was God thinking? Why would in the world, why in the world would God even want a church in Pergamum? It has all those temples to these pagan gods, all this false god worship, all this emperor worship going on, and if you're a follower of Christ in that city, you face persecution every day, you face death every day. Why wouldn't God just move those believers somewhere else, a little bit safer? Why wouldn't uh, God just pick another city? Sure, there there must be a better option out there, a safer option out there. Uh, to set them up to pronounce and proclaim the gospel of Christ. Well, I'd say the reason God put them where they were in Pergamum is because God loves everyone. God loves every person. He loves the good. He loves the bad. He even loved the people in Pergamum who were worshiping all of these false gods. I believe our Heavenly Father's heart was broken for these people. I believe His desire was for them to truly, truly come to know Him. But the only way to do that was for Him to plant this church in the center of this horrible city to reach out to those that were spiritually lost. That was their assigned mission field for that group of Christians. And I believe they understood that. But I've also said this before. Some people say, the safest place to be is in the will of God. I would say that proves this wrong. This proves that wrong. Sometimes the most dangerous place to be is in the will of God. Now, comes a time when God brings down the hammer on the church of Pergamum. You remember he starts out with some good news and then he hits them with the bad. He starts out saying, hey, I like that you stand for me and I like that you don't renounce me. But look at verse 14. Nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. He's talking about the things that this church has got to work on. They've got some things that they've got to change. He says, there are some among you. And remember, he's talking to church people. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Some of you might not be, probably aren't familiar with Balaam or Balak. That's okay. You can read about them in uh, uh, Numbers chapter 23 through 25. But let me summarize uh, a little bit about these two guys. Balaam was a prophet of God. And back in that day, the prophets had the power to bless. They also had the power to curse. Balak was the king of the Moabites. And he said that he would pay Balaam, this prophet of God, to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. The crazy thing is, this prophet of God, this Balaam, he actually considered it. He entertained the thought. He entertained the offer. God, of course, wasn't about to allow it. God turned the curse into blessings. So Balak decided to go another route. If I can't get him that way, um, he said, I'm going to invite Uh, the the enemy's most beautiful women to stand before uh, these people and I'm going to invite them to commit fornication with these women Um, I'm going to invite them and challenge them to intermarry with these women and his whole thought in doing that his thought was then we'll have a part of our culture mixed in with their religion and mixed into their lives think about that what he was doing he was diluting the gospel of Jesus Diluting the gospel of Jesus, and he was adding the gospel of their culture. Don't tell me that doesn't sound like the world that we're living in today. We're interjecting so much of our culture into uh, the truth of God. And it's diluting the word of God. He knew that if he couldn't destroy the people of God through a curse, he'd get him another way. Compromise. Look at verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold true to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Not much is known about the Nicolaitans other than whatever they were doing and practicing in chapter 2. God said he hated it. And again, he didn't hate the Nicolaitans, the people, but he hated their sinful practices. But think about what Satan did. Satan tempted them to participate in their own culture. That's all they had to do in their immorality, their idolatry, so that before long, they were blending in and looking like everyone else and compromising their own spirituality. Why would Satan do it? He knew the power of compromising. He knew that if he could get the people of God to compromise, they would eventually destroy themselves from the inside out. Basically, he was saying, if you can't curse them, compromise them. A term for that is worldly Christians. Anybody ever heard that? These people were trying to compromise their faith, trying to live in both worlds, being worldly Christians. These people were supposed to be believers in Christ but they were take part, taking part of Jesus' teachings out and interjecting a little bit of culture here, a little bit of culture there, and before long you couldn't even recognize it was God's Word. They were trying to play on both sides of the aisle. And as a result, this church in Pergamum quickly became like everyone else, like the world around them. And this is the thing, instead of, transforming, instead of them transforming their culture, their culture transformed them. Amen? Instead of them transforming their culture like God had planned, their culture came in and transformed them. Unfortunately, this uh, same thing happens today. There are churches today with believers who are leaning toward the same kind of compromise. But here's the thing when it comes down to it. The church has to be in the world. That's our mission field, right? But if you know the Word of God, it says we have to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Maybe I can put it a better way. It's fine for the, water, the boat to be in the water, but it's not so fine for the water to be in the boat. If you get enough water in the boat, eventually that boat's going to sink. Amen? That's what compromise does to our lives. And if you're wondering how compromise sneaks into our personal lives, I believe it starts out with the way we view the Word of God. And sometimes we fail to accept the Word of God. Look what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound doctrine and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Wow, that sounds a whole lot like our world today. And it's really hard to believe that was written over 2,000 years ago. Because when I think about it, the human heart hasn't changed a whole lot in those 2,000 years. Sometimes it's not that we don't know the truth, it's just that we don't like the truth. And it's not that we really don't know the Bible. Sometimes it's we just want to do something else. That's exactly what was happening in this city of Pergamum, in this church at Pergamum. There were leaders who were teaching false doctrines. And the people were saying, hey, we like their version of Christianity. We like that version because it doesn't command us to uh, repent. It tolerates our lifestyle and not only uh, tolerates it, it okays it. It encourages it. Their thoughts were, oh, by the way, we don't exist to glorify God. God exists to give us permission to do whatever we want to do. That sounds a little bit familiar today, too. Just like today in our world, the Word of God has come under attack from people, I believe, outside the church, for sure, but even from people inside the church. It was happening back in the text that we're talking about, too, and Jesus said, that's un- unacceptable. Jesus flat out rebukes them, and he gives them a few commands. Verse 16, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the first thing he tells them, if you're taking notes, is repent. It always has to start with repentance. Repentance is actually changing your mind. Repentance always starts with your mind. It's when you say, you know what I've been thinking is wrong. What I've been excusing is inexcusable. And that fight I've been having against God mentally, it's got to stop. I need to stop fighting against God and I need to start trusting in God. So the first thing he tells them is you've got to repent. The second thing he tells them, obey or face the consequences. Whenever you disobey, there's going to be consequences. We all understand that. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tolerate rebellion forever. It's going to have some consequences. Translation is, he's saying, you better repent for your sin because you you don't want to start a fight with Jesus. You don't want to start a war with Jesus. I'll just give you a heads up on that one. No one has ever had a battle with Jesus and won, and they never will. There's a term called apostasy. The definition of apostasy is the rejection of Christianity by someone who used to be a Christian. It means a departure, it means a revolt, it means a rebellion against Christianity. God hates that. God hates compromise, and He won't tolerate it in our lives, and He's not going to tolerate it in our churches. So the key to avoiding this apostasy, this uh, falling away from God, is always coming back to the Word of God. Always checking things out by the Word of God, what God says in His Scriptures. So whenever you and I hear a lie, where do we need to go with it? we need to go to the Word of God to find out what's the truth. Whenever we're tempted to sin, we need to go to the Bible for instruction. And whenever we do sin and fall short, we need to go to the Bible for correction. And I believe when it comes down to it, is the weapon that God uses the most to give us spiritual victory in our lives. Look what he says in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That hidden manna reference, he's actually just saying, I'm going to provide the spiritual nourishment that you need. But when he says uh, the white stone, scholars kind of debate that. Some of them say, well, that could refer to back then a wealthy person sometimes would uh, give away tickets to an event in a stadium or a, a theater and they would give you a white stone as your ticket in. Well, some of them say this is a direct reference to heaven, basically saying if you belong to Jesus, you're going to get your first class ticket into the kingdom of God with that white stone. Some would say that's uh, more like when you stand before a magistrate or a judge back in that day. You were uh, uh, come before a trial, accused of some crime. Um, At the end of that trial, they would either give you a white stone or a black stone. The white stone would declare you innocent. The black stone, of course, would declare you guilty. This might be a reference because of the death of Jesus. Our sin has been atoned for. We're seen as righteous. We're seen as justified in the eyes of God. And as a result, we're not punished. We're actually given freedom. Think about it. We're set free and we're forgiven. That's pretty awesome. But in closing, the real issue here is How do you see Jesus? Oh, he sees you. He sees everything about you, just like he saw everything about this church and what was going on in Pergamum. He knew all the false teachers. He knew their sexual sin. He knew who was teaching uh, what they were teaching that they shouldn't have been teaching. And Jesus presents himself as a king, not only a king, but a warring king who comes with a sword in his hand. That sword is the word of God. And he came with the Word of God to bring justice, to bring conviction of sin, to bring new life, and really to bring salvation. I was watching the Discovery Channel a while back, and they had uh, this story about the ancient city of Pergamum, which is not even there today. In fact, there's no, not even any Christians in this whole region. And when you read about this in the New Testament, they're describing what is modern-day Turkey. Well, believe it or not, in modern-day Turkey, there are over 74 million people. 74 million people, but there are only about 3,500 evangelical Christians. Oh, my gosh. Out of 74 million people, 3,500 Christians in Turkey. There's this group called Operation World, which puts statistics together, finding the unreached people groups of our world. That makes Turkey the most unreached nation on Earth, The most unreached nation on earth. Where did God plant this church of Pergamum? Right in the center of it all. This church of Pergamum had an amazing opportunity set before them by God. They could have done great things, mighty things for God, year after year after year. But it didn't happen. Today, that's not the case in Pergamum at all. It's not even there today. At some point, compromise compromise brought out apostasy and the gospel lost and compromise won you might say jesus lost and the devil won that's pretty sad that's pretty tragic but that brings me to a pretty heavy thought how's your daily walk today are you intermingling worldliness with your christianity have you compromised with the world around you this story alone ought to tell us that's not going to work Pergamum is a legacy. It's a reminder of what happens when we compromise with the world. And the great myth that we live in today is, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to us. It won't happen to my family. It won't happen to my church. Well, the story of Pergamum, I believe, is if everybody doesn't stick close to Jesus, we're going to lose our way. And we're going to miss out on our mission. Church, we can't let that happen. We can't let that happen individually as followers of Christ. And we can't let that happen corporately as the body of Christ. Amen. And I know God has more for us than that. To give up the mission that He has set before us. I challenge you, don't give up that mission. Amen. Could you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father God, I do ask right now that you would move in our midst. That you would look at each one of our hearts Father, I pray that you would see if there's any offensive way in any of us and lead us in the way of your everlasting truth. Father, convict us of any thoughts or any attitudes or any actions that keep us from living in ways that please you. And Father God, I pray that you would show us. I pray that you would tell us how we need to change, what areas we need to change so that we can be the church you've called us to be. We can be the followers you've called us to be for your glory, for your praise, and for your honor. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you all. See you again next week.